welcome to the For We Are Many podcast. This is our current event stream for October 12th, 2021. Um, I guess we got a few things to talk about today. Um, Trisha is going to be joining us in a few minutes. Um, Just to give a little bit of an overview, we're going to talk a little bit about the Facebook outage and the whistleblower incident. There's a second whistleblower now. We're going to talk about the Flint water crisis seven years on and what's happening in another uh, primarily black Michigan town called Benton Harbor. Uh, We're going to talk about climate change. We're going to talk about the polar vortex a little bit. Uh, It's already in motion for uh, this coming winter, and we're going to try to figure out what that means. We're going to talk a little bit about the global energy crisis, and uh, we're going to talk about Indigenous Peoples Day. Uh, But first, if you haven't, I'd like to encourage you to follow our page um, for We Are Many or Left Signal Boost or both, preferably. Um, Yeah. Hello. Was I having audio issues? I think I was. Great. Um... Well, now that I can see that I have volume, uh, we are talking today a little bit about climate change. The polar vortex is already in motion. Um, We're going to try to figure out what that means for this coming winter season. We're going to talk about the global energy crisis. We're going to talk about the Flint water crisis seven years on. Uh, We're going to talk about what's happening in another Michigan uh, city that's primarily black called Benton Harbor. Uh, We'll be talking about the Facebook outage and the now two whistleblowers that will be testifying, well, one who already testified, one who will be testifying to Congress. We'll be talking about Cuba, um, mostly about the vaccine, but also about the measures recently passed to increase Cuban food production. And of course, we're going to be talking about Indigenous Peoples Day. Hi, Emily. How are you? I think I was having audio issues at the beginning because, well, I know I was because my mic was muted. So, uh, yeah. Um, I'd also like to encourage everybody to share the stream into a group or onto your personal page if that's where you do your... um, propaganda spreading. There we go. No, anyway, so I guess we'll just dive right into this. Um, So I wanted to talk about Columbus in his own time was viewed as a monster, okay, by the people responsible for the Spanish Inquisition. So... Maybe we should just take down his statues. I'm just saying. Um, I I also don't think that we should try to fit indigenous history into one day. Um, or or one month, just like I, I said about Black History Month. While I will embrace it for the purpose of um, trying to spread awareness, I don't think that you can fit 
black history or indigenous history into one day or one month. Um, every day is in, uh, should be indigenous people's day. Every month should be black history month. You get my point. This should just be part of our culture. And I also feel like we try to whitewash it. Uh, indigenous people's day needs to include land back first and foremost. Um, and we need to acknowledge the role that white supremacy plays. Ultimately, what good is Indigenous Peoples Day as a federal holiday? If it's just a way to gloss over the facts of why Indigenous people are no longer in charge of, uh, no longer responsible for being the stewards of Turtle Island. That's just my thought. Um, Michigan State University published a land back acknowledgement for Indigenous Peoples Day. And while I, I do, I, I am somewhat concerned that it's performative. Um, they literally acknowledged that the federal government basically, I don't even want to use the word duped because it's not like they were stupid, but they, they intentionally misled the people of the tribes, the, the Three Fires Confederacy of the Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi peoples. Um, the, the federal government had no right, no authority to give that land to Michigan State University. And um, they are actually acknowledging that. So that I, I did find it somewhat impressive, even if it is largely performative. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not going to read the whole thing uh, on the air. Obviously, it's a little bit long. But uh, I encourage everybody to read it. This should be a much more common thing than it currently is. Um, hang on just one second. There we go. Needed my tunes. It was so quiet. How's everybody doing tonight? The uh, comments are real quiet tonight besides Emily saying hi.
Hey, Mako! Nice to see you. Always nice to see you. Um, speaking of Mako, actually, he will be back on the show. We should have planned ahead and had him on this episode um, to discuss Indigenous Peoples Day, which actually, Mako, if you want to take a last-minute invitation, I can send you the link right now. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of struggling with how to discuss Indigenous Peoples Day as well, a colonizer. Um, yeah. Anyway, we can circle back to that uh, in a little bit if Nico does decide to come on. But I wanted to talk about the vaccination push in Cuba. Um, today's, well, I mean, I guess every day's numbers, but today's numbers kind of impressed me, actually. It's been a couple of weeks since I checked. Um, and there's over nine and a half million Cuban people with a dose or more of the vaccine. That's 85% of their population. They are moving along at a much quicker rate than we are. Uh, fully vaccinated, there is 54.6 of the total population, which is 60%, according to the Cuban government, of the vaccinatable population. The very young and the very sick are, are, are excluded, as well as uh, people with certain heart or circulatory issues. Um, but yeah, 60% of the vaccinatable population is vaccinated on the island of Cuba. And I don't care who you are, that's impressive. They didn't even start pushing out any doses until the 7th of May. That's, what, five months ago? That's super impressive in that time frame. Um, they are also paying salaries for parents to that need to take time off work to get their kids vaccinated or to take care of their, to take care of their kids if they are sick after their vaccination. Hello, Natalie. Nice to see you. I was wondering where everybody was. It took a little bit to get everybody in today. Which is probably okay, because I was having some audio issues at the beginning. I uh, had my mic muted and didn't even realize it. Uh, and this one I need to actually bring up. There um, have been studies being done in Iran um, on the Cuban vaccine. And those, uh, came to a completion. Um, but anyway, um, Iran is producing one of Cuba's vaccines, uh, the, the Soberana 2, more specifically, um, which I think is just fantastic. But their human trials... Um, are completed on the Cuban vaccine. I know why I can't find the article that I'm looking for, because I'm on Google, and it was on Grandma. Um, anyway. Give me just a minute here. I have to find it. I should have had this uh, pulled up. I apologize. 
the desktop site is so much different. Would that be under science or health? Also on the Cuban vaccine, the Abdallah vaccine is completing phase three of its clinical trials. I did not see that this morning. Cuba is also making a push for hearing care. That's interesting. This has got to be under science. Can search. There we go. There we go. I found it. <clears throat> I apologize for that delay. <coughs> um, studies in Iran validate high efficacy of the sovereign the translation uh, the Soberana 2 and Soberana Plus vaccines um, the Finlay Institute of Vaccines confirmed this Monday that the results of the phase 3 clinical trial developed by the Pasteur Institute of Iran on the efficacy of the Soberana 2 and the Soberana Plus vaccines against the Delta strain of SARS-CoV-2 an independent committee uh, developed the phase three clinical trial in the Iranian population aged 18 to 80 years as part of a collaboration between the Persian entity and the IFV. According to the publication on the Cuban institution's Facebook profile, the double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial included 24,000 subjects who received Soberana 2 in a two-dose regimen in eight cities and one booster dose, which made it a three-dose regimen with Soberana Plus. That's the same way it's being administered in Cuba. Um, during the trial, the Delta variant in July, 71.9%, uh, and August, 95.4%, uh, was widely predominant. The Interim analysis showed that the efficacy of the vaccine in preventing confirmed hospitalization for COVID-19 with two doses was 76.8%, about where our two-dose set is, and in the three-dose regimen, it was 91.7%, um, which I'm sure that we'll know in a few months that that's probably going to be about the same case, if not a little less. Pfizer and Moderna boosters. Uh, the reason I say, if not a little less, is Soberana Plus is uh, slightly modified because they were trying to make it work for more variants as they came, uh, which at the time would primarily include Delta. It's okay, Natalie. I started the stream a couple minutes late myself, and as you see, Trisha's still not here yet, so. Um, yeah. How's everybody's week been? Is it, is it 
been a stressful time for everybody or is it just everybody I know? Uh, I kid, I kid. What was the other thing I wanted to talk about? Oh yeah, 63 measures to increase Cuban food production. Uh, but first, let me come back here and see. I hate it when Google Translate takes like three tries to work. Actually, this is new. I, I read a Reuters report about it, but I wasn't going to talk about it. This is from Grand Mas, so now I've got a little bit of two sides perspective here. Let's see what they're saying about it. There was a march that was called in Cuba, uh, and the government was like, nah, when they applied for a permit. Um, so basically Reuters was saying that it was going to be a peaceful march and that their goal was to change the political system in Cuba. Um, so I... I don't know. I tend to be skeptical. I tend to fear color revolutions like we have seen the United States plant all over the world. Um, so I understand why why Cuba is cautious. Um, but also I, I hope that you guys understand why I'm skeptical of what capitalist media is saying that communist Cuba is doing. Anyway, so here is from um, the Communist Party of Cuba's uh, publication, Granma. An illicit character is the march with the stabilizing purposes called to take place simultaneously in various territories of this country, according to the authorities of several municipalities in Cuban provinces, such as Havana, Via Clara and Las Tunas have declared in a statement. In accordance with this response, Article 56 of the Constitution, which is mentioned as the legal support for the convocation, establishes between the requirements for the exercise of the right to demonstrate the legality and, quote, respect for public order and compliance with the mandatory established in the law. I think that should have been translated as mandate, not mandatory. Anyway. Uh, it continues, as for the legality, legitimacy is not recognized and the reasons given for the march, the letter indicates. <clears throat> it is argued uh, for the decision that the promoters and their public um, projections, as well as the links with some of the subversive organizations or agencies, agencies financed by the U.S. government, surprise, have the manifest intention of promoting a change in the political system in Cuba. This reaffirms that the announced march, whose organizational scheme is conceived simultaneously for other territories of the country, constitutes a provocation as part of the regime change strategy for Cuba, already tested in other countries. They're talking about the, the very color revolutions that I was just talking about. Um, 
So basically, they're not even backing down that the intention of the protest is to promote a change in the political system in Cuba. Uh, the thing is that 90-something percent of the population of Cuba supports the Cuban government. I think that outside influences need to stop. Also, when massive protests happen in the United States, they're not talked about as quickly uh, or as supposedly in-depth as that Reuters article was about this situation. Um, and they're doing that for a reason. You know, um, just like when the first wave of protests happened, happened in Cuba, how long did the media ignore the Black Lives Matter movement? How long did the media ignore the Occupy movement? How long did the media ignore the Black Panther Party? You get my point. This is not a new thing. So you mean to tell me that, that Cuba says no to one protest? Well, I mean, I guess it would technically be several, but they say no to a protest and it's... The way they're trying to paint it is sickening. To see all the movements that I care about not be mentioned ever in the mainstream media, <clears throat> and then for them to push these protests in Cuba so firmly, so quickly, is just a bunch of red flags to me. Um, government authorities highlight that, quote, as soon as it was announced, the march received public support from U.S. legislators, political operators, and the media that encourage actions against the Cuban people uh, to try to destabilize the country and urge military intervention. And that's exactly what we saw in the last round of protests. As part of the document, they cite Article 45 of our Magna Carta, which states that, quote, the exercise of people's rights is only limited by the rights of others, collective security, general welfare, respect for public order, to the Constitution, and the laws. They also cite Article 4, where it is defined that, quote, the socialist system endorsed by this Constitution is irrevocable, uh, for which any action taken against it is unlawful. They add that, quote, the Constitution of the Republic was widely debated and approved in a referendum by 86.85% of the voters, an overwhelming majority that freely and sovereignly chose the socialist system. It's irrev uh, irrevocability. Why can I not talk? Uh, no, so, like, that's the thing. The part that made it irrevocable was voted on and approved by 86.85% of voters. Can you think of the last time that anything that went to a ballot in the United States was approved by 86.85% of the voters? No, I didn't think so. Uh, and a forceful and clear... Uh, I skipped this part. Uh, a part. Um... And the right to fight, by all means, against anyone who tries to overthrow the established political, social, and economic order. In a forceful and clear manner, the statement concludes by explaining that, taking into account the previous arguments, it is evident that, although a constitutional right is invoked, it cannot be exercised against the other rights, guarantees, 
and essential postulates of the Constitution itself, which determines the illegal nature of the march. Exactly, just like they are currently ignoring stopping line three. I have not heard anything about a Russian variant. I have heard about Lambda, uh, which the World Health Organization says is of interest. Um, Cuba seems to be taking it seriously. They're already trying to do a specific test for that variant. Um, they're, They're... they don't think that it's very widespread in Cuba yet, um, but of course they are taking it seriously. But yeah, the the media is certainly ignoring the stopping of line three and line five. Um, absolutely. Um, kind of surprised Trish was not here yet. She said she'd be a couple of or a few minutes late. It's half an hour in. Um, there, I realized that I forgot a bunch of uh, groups when I shared it around. That explains it, doesn't it? I was wondering why there was only like three or four viewers. Alright, sorry, back to the, um, so the Facebook outage, um, I think really made us all realize how important connection and communication is outside of the social media framework. Uh, since then, I know a lot of groups that, that I'm involved with have set up, you know, Slack servers, Discord servers, uh, Signal groups. Um, and I congratulate all of you, honestly, it needs to happen. Um, I totally skipped <clears throat> the 63 measures to increase Cuban food production. We're not, we're not done with, um, Cuba quite yet. Give me just one second to look that up. funny that I found that quicker on uh, Twitter than I did on Google. Damn it. I thought that that was going to give me a link, but it didn't. There we go, I found it. Okay, well, that loads. Um, (laughs) 
So before before I dive into this, I guess I want to ask your opinions. What do you think about the Facebook outage? What do you think about the whistleblower? Because I'm kind of conflicted on it. Part of me worries that it's going to be used to push Facebook censorship agenda further. But there was also some very valid things brought up. Teen suicide rates and Instagram do go hand in hand, and we know that that's on purpose. Uh, maybe, maybe the suicides themselves are a side effect, but they're intentionally trying to make us angry. They're intentionally trying to fraction, fractionalize us. Um, we can't let that happen. We need to come out of this more united than ever. Um, and maybe Facebook isn't the best place to do that. But while I'm concerned that it's going to be used to make censorship on Facebook even more rampant, I do think that a lot of important things were brought to light. Um, like I said, though, I'm just trying to... Uh, Figure out what you guys think about it before I dive deeper into it than that. Why didn't this automatically translate? That's weird. I'm going to refresh it again. There we go. Okay. So with the aim of increasing food production and meeting the unmet demand for agricultural products, the Cuban government recently approved, with the participation of producers, experts, and managers of the sector, 63 measures, of which 30 are considered priority and some are for immediate implementation. <coughs> um, when intervening this Wednesday in the roundtable program, the Deputy Prime Minister, uh, Jorge Luis Tapia Fonseca, explained that in general, the new provision, provisions respond to structural, organizational, productive, and socioeconomic problems identified based on a diagnosis of the behavior of the main agricultural programs in the last decade. In addition to the diagnosis, these measures, he said, were reached by the path of consensus after visits to all the provinces and exchanges with the producer, producers, I apologize, who issued around 370 opinions and approaches, which shows the democratic, socialist, and participatory character of the government with the peasants. Among the background, Tapia Fonseca Fonseca, sorry, also mentioned the current economic scenario, market marked by the worsening of the blockade and the impact of the pandemic, as well as the implementation of the economic social strategy approved by the country, the principles of the National Development Plan until 2030, and the start of the ordering tasks. Um, agriculture fails to meet the needs of the population, acknowledged the Vice Prime Minister, referring to the results of the diagnosis, while pointing out among the main problems is the oversizing of structures, the non-separation of functions, uh, state companies, as well as the excess of intermediaries who abandon the mission of producing 
and contributed to the increase in costs. Um, Fonseca also emphasized the low productivity of the different forms of production, the little introduction of science and technology, and the deficiencies in the use and tenure of land. He also pointed out the difficulties associated with the financial sphere and investments, the limited generation of income, and the existence of companies and cooperatives with losses and debts without support in the banking system. <clears throat> Non-payment to producers, a long-standing problem that, despite the approved measures, has not been resolved, was another matter addressed by the Vice Prime Minister. In this sense, he reported that the new decisions have been made for and from local governments and with the participation, participa eh, participation adding extra syllables and shit, of the Ministry of Finance and Prices and the companies involved, it can be identified what corresponds to each entity with the premise that whoever buys has to pay immediately. Uh, regarding social issues, he highlighted insufficient housing construction, which is wild. Homelessness is not a thing there. Um, but they want upgraded housing. I don't, I don't hate them for that. But the point is, is that everybody's housed and they're still trying to improve for that. Uh, limitations in the public service network, as well as migration from the countryside to the cities, and the aging, aging of the population in rural communities, which I don't know if you've ever watched Cuba and the Cameraman, but you kind of get to see that, like, in real life with the, with the same people. Um, you know, like, sure, they had kids, but their kids had kids and moved off to the city, and it was a bunch of 80-year-old men running the farm until they died. Um, so that, that's been an issue, I think, long before now. Um, but basically, uh, there is an across-the-board decrease in electricity rates. Um, uh, in M3A, which is the in independent home register meter, and uh, the M3B which is a meter with three registers. So I would assume that M3B would be like a housing complex. M3A would be like an individual, like a family home. <clears throat> Check this out. They will be applied retroactively from January 2021. The rates will be fixed throughout the year and will be applied to all agricultural activities. Contracting the, electric, uh, the electricity service directly with the producer Automatic collection against the balance of the accounts of the productive base is eliminated. The board of directors of the cooperatives may collect, by mutual agreement, the electricity service from their producers. In those cases, the electric company assumes a payment of a 3% commission to the cooperative. Um, water service. Current rates decreased by 32% for rice and 22% for the remaining activities. Uh, for groundwater, the price is reduced from 1750 pesos to 750 pesos for every thousand cubic meters. Um, the aviation tariff for rice production, in other words, spraying crops, uh, is reduced by around 20%. Of the unproductive hours, the aviation will only charge the cost. 
prices of domestic feed for pig production are reduced by 60%. The price of bioproducts is reduced based on the revision of the cost sheets. The rates of the services and procedures that are provided to the productive forms and producers are reduced. In correspondence with the faculties of the OSDE and the companies in accordance with the cost sheets in each place, a mutual agreement with who receives the service according to the contract. Um, so there, there is a dual pricing for agricultural products. And I've heard a little bit about dual pricing for, for specific items, but this makes a lot of sense, I guess. The, okay, so there is a centralized pricing for the fixed destinations of delivery to industry, so social consumption, medical diets, and the family food system. And then decentralized to local governments and business groups for other destination. In the case of Taro, uh, bananas for food, fruit and donkey, sweet potato, mango, guava, fruit bomb, and tomato for the industry. Um, reorient development funds in the budget to stimulate the growth of productions in a trust regime, which does not imply financial expenses for the productive base. Um, agricultural insurance. So... Uh, this constitutes a guarantee and a real uh, and real compensation to producers. Uh, the main risks are pest, disease, extreme weather, so on. So that way, if you have a bad harvest, you still get to fucking eat. Um, and above all, so you, you notice we haven't heard profits here one time, right? But. <clears throat> The Minister of Finance and Prices, as well as the Deputy Prime Minister, uh, both stressed that they wanted to prioritize, above all, the feeding of the people. Um, and and a, a critique of Cuba that I've heard is that um, since the hardships that faced Cuba <clears throat> following the fall of the Soviet Union uh, was non-payment to producers. Basically, like, farmers got to keep some of their food so they didn't starve, but they weren't necessarily getting paid for it. And, um, you know, at this point, they, they are putting a complete end to that, even though that hasn't really been a thing in quite a while. Um, but now it's actually codified into law. The producer must pay for its operations. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, I'm not going to go through the entire thing. There's um, prices of livestock, which... Um, They're, they're trying to maintain the price of seven and a half pesos per liter of cow's milk when the delivery plan is breached. Um, pay a new fee for the transport of fresh milk from the producer to the agreed point. So, delivery services. Um, 
Yeah. Wow. Uh, cattle marketing. Uh, basically, I think they're trying to avoid price fixing there. Marketing of agricultural products. Uh, marketing in this sense means putting to market. Not necessarily advertising. Um, and promoting the development of the mini industry for food production. So basically they want to start making all of their food or most of their food actually on Cuba, which is a show of independence that they have not yet been able to achieve. So, I mean, I'm impressed in the attempt, honestly. Yes, Natalie, they do have crop insurance. That's one of the immediate things, actually. They do have crop insurance financed by the government. Um, you know, you're not paying some middleman for years on end for something you might not ever use. Um, of course, it's still paid for in other ways. It's financed by the government, but um, some of the measures in this are being paid for. Um, like, for example, you know, like dairy having to be transported refrigerated is a new thing from the sounds of it. A new regulation, I should say, not that it hasn't been being done. But uh, they added a fee for that. It's like 25 cents. Um, so that's how they're funding these kind of things. Um, and Natalie, I agree. I, I'm worried about it as well. I, I also have a hard time condoning censorship. We do all know where that can lead. We talk about it a lot. And at first I was like, oh, well, you know, like if this shit's going on, Facebook should shut it down. And then I was like, well, it's kind of a hairy, tight rope to, to walk. Um, yeah. Uh, give me just one second here, you guys. So I'm going to play an excerpt from back to the, the Facebook whistleblower thing. I'm going to play an excerpt from the 60 Minutes interview. Give me just a second here. Where? Oh, there it is. And the thing I saw at Facebook over and over again was... There were conflicts of interest between what was good for the public and what was good for Facebook. And Facebook over and over again chose to optimize for its own interests, like making more money. Francis Haugen is 37, a data scientist from Iowa with a degree in computer engineering and a Harvard master's degree in business. For 15 years, she's worked for companies including Google and Pinterest. I've seen a bunch of social networks and it was substantially worse at Facebook than anything I'd seen before. You know, someone else might have just quit and moved on. And I wonder why you take this stand. Imagine you know what's going on inside of Facebook and you know no one on the outside knows. I knew what my future looked like if I continued to stay inside of Facebook, which is 
person after person after person has tackled this inside of Facebook and ground themselves to the ground. When and how did it occur to you to take all of these documents out of the company? At some point in 2021, I realized, okay, I'm gonna have to do this in a systemic way and I have to get out enough that no one can question that this is real. She secretly copied tens of thousands of pages of Facebook internal research. She says evidence shows that the company is lying to the public about making significant progress against hate, violence, and misinformation. One study she found from this year says, we estimate that we may action as little as three to 5% of hate and about six-tenths of 1% of violence and incitement on Facebook, despite being the best in the world at it. To quote from another one of the documents you brought out, we have evidence from a variety of sources that hate speech, divisive political speech, and misinformation on Facebook and the family of apps are affecting societies around the world. When we live in an information environment that is full of angry, hateful, polarizing content, it erodes our civic trust, it erodes our faith in each other, it erodes our ability to want to care for each other. The version of Facebook that exists today is tearing our societies apart and causing ethnic violence around the world. Ethnic violence, including Myanmar in 2018, when the military used Facebook to launch a genocide. But I'm here today because I believe Facebook's products harm so, children, uh, stoke division, and weaken our... There we go. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that she brought up some very good points, which... Why am I still here? Oh, because I didn't close it. That's why. Huh. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely worry that it's going to be used to promote further censorship. Um, there, oh, yeah, I need to look up the second whistleblower as well. Societies and individual families, to say the least. Exactly. Think about how much drama Facebook has caused at your Thanksgiving dinners. And I'm not necessarily saying that that doesn't need to happen. Um, but it kind of just blew the door open on it. And Facebook fed that because it gets clicks. Uh, and clicks make them money. That's fucking disgusting. Um, I do need to look up the second whistleblower real quick. I haven't uh, actually listened to what she's got to say yet. This, this one appears to be talking to CNN. Why? Hold on. I don't want Business Insider, especially since they're sharing a CNN video. It's kind of bizarre. I bet I can find it quicker on YouTube than this. Hold on. 
maybe. Anyway, her name is Sophie Zhang, and uh, no, Natalie, I do not know who owns Twitch. Do you? Um, so the second Facebook whistleblower is named Sophie Zhang, and she said that she felt like she had blood on her hands after working at Facebook. Um she is also willing to testify before Congress about her former employer. And she said that she passed on documentation about the company to a U.S. law enforcement agency. All right. I found the video. Oh, add. No, thank you. It was very frustrating for me. I, st I started losing sleep because, I mean, no sound? I should never have been the person in That's this position. No okay. and the per Hold on. It was very frustrating for me. I, st I started losing sleep because, I mean, I should never have been the person in this position. And frankly, I was the wrong person for this position. I am, I am not charismatic, I am, I am not good at attracting or receiving attention, I'm an introvert who wants to stay home and pet my cats. Sophie Zhang was hired by Facebook to track fake accounts, but what she ended up finding, she says, was far more concerning. Repressive governments around the world using Facebook to achieve influence and control. Anyone is an expert on public relations, on getting attention, on what is effective driving attention, it is dictators of those countries. And the fact that multiple national governments and presidents felt the need to exploit Facebook on vast scales to, to manipulate their own citizenry without even trying to hide, hide that speaks volumes about how important they believed it to be, how important this it actually is. Some of her findings led to Facebook cracking down on accounts in Azerbaijan and Honduras, but she says Facebook is too slow to act against abuse of its platform, particularly in smaller or developing countries. When it first came to light last year, some of what you had found, Facebook executive Guy Rosen said, with all due respect, what she's described as fake likes, which we routinely remove using automated detection. We prioritize stopping the most urgent harmful threats globally. Fake likes is not one of them. I personally briefed him on this matter and he knew perfectly well that it was not fake, just fake likes. In fact, Facebook did two thorough investigations and takedowns that received media attention based on my work. This is where there's a lot of similarity between you and Francis Hogan, is in both cases, Facebook is saying you were low-level employees and also that frankly, neither of you know what you're talking about. And I think the people can decide for themselves who's more credible. She was fired by Facebook last year. She said the company told her because of performance issues. Facebook offered you $64,000. Part of that was the non-disparagement agreement. You chose not to sign that. That is correct. Before she left the company, she wrote a 7,800 word memo detailing how she said Facebook was contributing to havoc around the world, writing she felt like she had blood on her hands. 
She was expecting Facebook to remove the memo from its internal company system, so she also posted it on her personal website. But then, Facebook asked her website's hosting service to take the memo down, claiming it contained proprietary information. Facebook shut down your website. First, they went to my hosting server and got them to take it down. A few days later, my domain registrar told me that they, that they took down my domain too. But that seems an extraordinary move to me. No? Absolutely. I'm still a bit annoyed that I never got my website back. But I don't, I, I don't blame the hosting server. No one wants to make an enemy of Facebook. Facebook told CNN Sophie's memo contains sensitive information that could have been used by people trying to get around Facebook's safety systems. A company spokesperson also said Facebook had invested $13 billion in safety and security and have 40,000 people reviewing content in 50 languages across the world, adding, We've also taken down over 150 networks seeking to manipulate public debate since 2017, and they have originated in over 50 countries, with the majority coming from or focused outside of the US. Our track record shows that we crack down on abuse abroad with the same intensity that we apply in the US. I believe Facebook's consistent understaffing of the counter-espionage, information operations, and counter-terrorism teams is a national security issue. Despite Facebook saying it is investing billions in tackling its problems, boat whistleblowers say the company isn't spending enough to fight hate and misinformation. I just think people would find that shocking that on an area is muted. I want to <coughs> I want to point out before I move on. Mako said, "Yet the left for the most part has failed to grasp the importance of creating propaganda." I completely agree. Um that's one of the small pieces of why we're doing this and and this is just a small thing, but it's it's something. Uh, back in the day, there was workers' newspapers, like often more than one in a given city. Now there's like none. First, they were kind of, you know, like absorbed or taken out by more corporate media. Um, and then, you know, newspapers kind of fell away. And I feel like there's never really been a collective of leftist news organizations um, or really even leftist media in general. And you're absolutely right. You do need you. Well, we do need propaganda. Um, I have not personally read Mao's combat liberalism yet. Um, but yeah, it should be, it should be required of everyone. I mean, how are we supposed to agitate or organize if we don't even know what each other are doing or, uh, we don't even really get an honest view of what's happening around us. And again, that's by design. Um, So that's down. Moving on to the Flint water crisis. Hard to believe that was seven years ago. Um, why is YouTube 
not working right now. This is really bizarre. Is YouTube down? We don't have any viewers on YouTube right now either. Not that we often do, but we usually have like one. Um, well, I guess I'll circle back to that idea. But uh, anyway, Um, so back in July, it was reported that testing was showing the least amount of lead in Flint water since the water crisis. I guess what I'm trying to say is that things have improved for uh, a pretty significant chunk of the city, but that doesn't mean that the issue is gone. And just like Dean was saying back when we started this podcast, Flint was the canary in the coal mine, so to speak. This is a, a major issue across urban areas. Um, actually, uh, before I move past this section completely, uh, you guys like remind me if I forget, but I want to talk about Benton Harbor because it's a similar thing is happening there now. But first, I want to talk a little bit about what happened that caused the water crisis in the first place, because there's some fundamental misunderstandings of it. Um, so I guess for starters, the assumption is that the democratically elected city government in Flint made the choice to switch the water supply to the Flint River Um and that's not the case at all. There was public hearings about it. The public was very much against it. Uh, the city council and the mayor voted against it. The emergency manager, uh, a man named Mike Brown, um, a Republican appointed by his friend, now former governor Rick Snyder of the state of Michigan, decided that it would save them money. And part of the reason that it would save them money is because they would not follow the EPA's advice, if you will, um, on properly cleaning the water. So to save like 13 cents a cubic meter or whatever, I just made that up, but I do that kind of shit in the kitchen too. Like, oh, that costs 17 cents talking about a lid for a fucking plastic ramekin, but Anyway, the point is, is that some minuscule amount of money is the reason that so many people have had to suffer. Um, and it wasn't just the lead either. And that's something else that people don't seem to realize. There was also the, out, the outbreak of Legionnaire's disease. Um, I don't remember what the exact numbers in that were, but that was, that was a handful of people too. It, it, and lead causes um, developmental challenges. So like, there's a lot of kids that are going to have issues that we don't even know have issues yet. Um, sure. It's seven years on, we have a little bit of an idea, but we're not really going to know until the people that were babies when this happened seven years ago 
are entering adulthood. Um, and that's assuming that they have access to medical care. And that's something else that I wanted to point out is that a lot of people in Flint don't have access to medical care. They either can't get to the doctor, right? Because public transportation is unsafe, unreliable, et cetera, et cetera. Or they're just not in a physical condition to be able to go to the doctor or their, their closest doctor's office, the doctor they trust no longer accepts Medicaid. Um, you know, all of these are issues. Uh, but anyway, back to the water. The point is, is that it was not the democratically elected city government that made the, this decision, and it was certainly not the public. There was public hearings on it while the emergency manager was in charge, and the response was to make those meetings no longer open to the public. Um, it was a disgusting abuse of power when it happened. And almost everybody that we encountered at the time as activists trying to stop this from happening, almost everybody turned the other way. Nobody really seemed to care until lead was discovered in the water. Um, but yeah, the, the water treatment plant um, is on the Flint River. Sorry, I just got distracted by a text message. Uh, yes, exactly, Natalie. Lead can lead to drastically lower IQ for life. Um, McCo said they know. That's why they sent all the lead paint to the res once it was taken off the shelves. Lead was leading to unexplained behavior issues, among other things. It's an attack on a populace. Exactly. Exactly. And Flint is... I actually hold on. Fifty seven percent black um, is an estimate. Hold on, where, where's the census results? Well, as of 2020, it is apparently 54% black, which is very shocking to me, to be honest. Um, I would say that when I lived there, like 2009 to 2014, it was, well, maybe it was just where I was at, but it was, it was much more, uh, than half black but anyway um exactly it is an attack on a populace and most of these lead lines were in low-income areas which are primarily people of color and no matter how you try to spin it whether they're attacking the poor it's still adversely affecting the back black population or whether it's an attack on the black population specifically and then you know just everyone who's in that side of town is caught in it 
either way, it's an attack on a populace, whether it's intentional because it's a black area or whether it's intentional because it's a poor area, either way, it's intentional. Um, when resources started coming in, um, when, when resources st started coming into the city, where did they fix downtown? the uh, the south side and then they worked their way north they worked their way east it was downtown and south and west where the white people live Natalie I tend to think it was higher too I mean like I said maybe I'm just jaded because I lived in a very not white area but I'm pretty sure it was higher. That being said, they are trying to turn it into a college town. There's U of M Flint. There's Mott Community College. Uh, there, there's Kettering. They're trying to turn it into a college town. And that probably has something to do with the white population going up in recent years. <clears throat> and that's uh, why downtown and the west side get better water sooner. Anyway, I'm getting a little off topic here. Um, the, the city of Flint has replaced over 10,000 lead pipes. Gentrification, exactly. And we were calling that out during the Occupy movement. Well said, Nico. Uh, he posted a Malcolm X quote saying, show me a capitalist and I'll show you a racist. Totally agreed. But yes, uh, Natalie, it is absolutely gentr gentrification. We were talking about this way back in the Occupy days. Uh, even though a lot of the people that were involved with the movement were white people that were, you know, going to the university. Um, when they got there and saw the reality around them, they realized that this is what was going on. They're trying to move, uh, you know, younger, wealthier white people into overpriced apartments downtown to go to U of M Flint. Um, you know, they're trying to have like a hipster vibe downtown, you know, um, it, it absolutely is gentrification. Now we're over an hour into the stream. Now I'm really starting to wonder where Trisha is. Um, Yeah, anyway, uh, there, the, this article from the Washington Post is, um, is uh, I totally just lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. Basically, this article is talking about how gaining back that trust is difficult. And um, <laughs> the first line of this is a Biden quote. Never again can we allow what happened in Flint, Michigan. Well, he's right, but it's too late for that. Joe, this is already happening in Benton Harbor. I'm willing to bet that it's already happening in places like New Orleans. New York City uh, definitely has some impoverished areas. Um, I'm, I'm willing to bet that this, much like Dean was saying forever ago at this point, that Flint was the canary in the coal mine there. And I think that we're going to see this lack of maintain maintenance of infrastructure all over the country at the end of the day. Um, the reason that the lead is not as 
prominent in the water in some of these places is because the water is properly treated. And uh, that was not the case in Flint. And that appears to be a factor in the current situation in Benton Harbor. Um, but yeah, that was that was a big part of the bipartisan infrastructure bill was replacing pipes. But where? That's what I want to know. I, I mean, yeah, these lines do need to... Um, need to be replaced, but, um, he, he said, quote, millions of lead pipes. This is back in September, by the way, millions of lead pipes carrying drinking, drinking water to our homes and schools and daycare centers. They're finally going to be replaced. As he said that more than 500 miles to the Northwest, Flint was entering its seventh year of wrestling with one of one of the most disastrous high profile water crises in the nation's history. In early 2014, with the city under the control of a government-appointed emergency manager, officials had switched Flint's uh, water source in a bid to save money. The state had failed, however, to ensure the proper corrode. I don't like how that's worded. It's not that they failed, it's that they neglected it. The EPA warned them before they ever switched. The state had failed, however, to ensure that proper corrosion control chemicals were added to the new water supply and oversight that eventually resulted in lead to leach from the city's aging pipes flow into homes and threaten an entire community. Um, so there was a lead water pipe removal program established in 2017 under a court order issued as part of a massive lawsuit on behalf of Flint residents, is inching toward a close. Block by block, house by house, the city and its contractors have excavated and checked more than 27,000 pipes to determine what hidden risks remain under the ground. The the effort has led the city to replace more than 10,000 lead pipes so far. Um, Other communities are awaiting the funding and the political will to overhaul crumbling water infrastructure, this monumental undertaking has demonstrated that it is possible for cities to rid themselves of the lingering health risk running into their homes, that years from now there could be a day when parents in America no need to worry that the water coming out of their taps might poison their children. But the moment also highlighted another truth. The end of lead pipe replacements does not mean the end of the catastrophe for many in Flint. Prosecutions of former government officials involved in the tragedy are ongoing. Uh, Looking at Mike Brown and Rick Snyder, though, neither one of them has been, you know, prosecuted. A $641 million settlement, they make it sound like so much, but I mean... We're talking about generations of people that that were affected by this. Anyway, a $641 million settlement of civil claims with the state of Michigan is yet to be finalized. And while Flint's water quality is monitored regularly and has met federal guidelines for five years running, uh, some residents continue to harbor distrust and doubt after governments at every level failed them. Um, Well... I mean, not to like say that the federal government did anything right, but the federal government did warn the state government. In fact, the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality 
also warned um, the governor. It's not the governments at every level failed them. It's that the governor took way more power than he ever had the right to take and failed them. It wasn't a city government. It wasn't really even most of the state government. And the federal government warned against it. So, I mean, while I do think there is some accountability to be had at all of those levels uh, for delaying the, the replacement of these pipes in every city in America, for um, rushing to get a 60-year-old treatment plant that hadn't been used in, like, 50 years, um, the, the, there was a lot of things that should have happened differently. I guess is ultimately what I'm trying to say. Um, many still rely on bottled water even after having their pipes replaced because they don't trust it. And I can't really blame them. As a part of Flint's recovery ends, here are some glimpses at how residents view the closing of one chapter as well as the questions that remain. Um, Carlene Tyus, age 65, uh, moved back to Flint, her hometown, from Texas in 2014. And uh, she said, if I get the opportunity to leave, I'm leaving. And I get that. I understand that not everybody has that, that ability, but I got the hell out of Flint when that shit went down. Um, I did end up back there for um, a while, but... And we did have to rely on bottled water. Um, but that was the moment when I realized that I couldn't live there anymore, which was really sad. I really liked the people there. Well, I mean, most of them have also moved from Flint at this point, but I really liked the people there. Um, and it was a very unique city to me. Um, She said, I'm sorry, I was reading ahead. She said she didn't see anything replaced or removed and has struggled to understand how to make sure she still has no lead line running to her home. Uh, she says that she still notices what appear to be mineral deposits coming from her water. Uh, she is skeptical that the predominantly black residents of Flint will receive much more help and wonders what their pipe replacement program amounts to if she and other residents still don't trust the water. Uh, she has hair loss that she blames you know, on um, showering and contaminated water. And really, showering is about the only damn thing that I did with that water when I lived there. And, I mean, <laughs> um, that could also, you know, just be white jeans. But it is what it is. But she went on to say, I still can't wash my hair. I still can't use the water. I still can't take a bath. This is like a third world country and it just shouldn't be. Um. <laughs> oh my God, you're so right, Natalie. Asking for that damn glass of water. Uh, Rick Snyder did that same thing before that. Like, like when the water wasn't safe, he went to City Hall and, uh, you know, like, asked for somebody to bring him a glass of water 
and was like, see, it's safe, but like it very clearly was not the water out of the tap. It was clear. The water coming out of the tap at fucking at home was like a yellowish hue. You're not going to tell me that was the same water. Um, I do not believe that the state was furnishing lead test kits. In fact, it took them almost two years to get um, proper testing going. Um, and then supposedly the issue was gone within six months. The only reason it even came to light is because people working for universities came to Flint and they met up with people all across the city and took like hundreds of fucking water samples from homes and businesses throughout the city. And they found lead pretty much everywhere. And we're not talking about a little lead. We're talking about like 14 times the federal regulation, which then they raised the federal regulation. So more lead was acceptable. And they're like, hey, the water's safe to drink, man. No. No, it wasn't. Anyway, I could go on about the Flint water crisis for a long time. As I said, I lived there from 2000. Actually, I think it was 2008 to tell... Well, I had a six-month stint in Detroit, but other than that, until 2014, when when all this water shit happened, I was going to the meetings um, at City Hall. We were all, I, I mean, there was a lot of occupiers, former occupiers that were going there, that were there too. Um, there was a lot of people speaking out against it, and the city didn't want to hear it. Um, Benton Harbor, right. Um, I'm also going to pull up a map, actually. I, I want to give a little bit of... context as to where these places are. Um, so Benton Harbor... Uh, which, if I, if I remember correctly, is still the corporate headquarters of Whirlpool. 84.72% black. Um, they're having the same kind of... Um, lead issues that Flint was. Alright. So Benton Harbor Oh yeah, I probably gotta click screen uh share screen, don't I? There we go. Benton Harbor is on the west side of the state. Um, it's a suburb of Kalamazoo, I guess, kind of. It's actually kind of a long ways from Kalamazoo. Um, 
it's down by the Indiana border. Um, that being said, Flint is here. Detroit is here. I grew up here. Anyway, um, point is, is it's a very industrial town, very predominantly black. And they have been dealing with a lead issue in their water for at least three years um, since people started having it tested. And they, they've been advised, um, finally, by the state to not use tap water for drinking, bathing, or cooking out of, out of an abundance of caution to lead con uh, contamination. Which is interesting because when the lead was an issue in Flint, they did not say not to use it for bathing. They said not to use it for drinking or cooking. Anyway, for at least three years, residents of Benton Harbor, Michigan have been suffering from lead-contaminated water with what experts describe as insufficient, I think that's being way too polite, intervention from state and local officials. This month, the state promised to expand free water distribution in the city and reaffirmed its commitment to comply with federal lead, regu uh, lead regulations. So we're talking about, um, in 2018, Benton Harbor was found to have lead contamination at 22 parts per billion in its tap water, which is considerably more than the federal action level of 15 parts per billion, which if I remember correctly was seven parts per billion prior to the water crisis and it, higher than Flint at the height of its water crisis. It was averaging about 18, I believe, uh, parts per billion. Yeah, yeah, well, a lot of filtration systems, at least whole house uh, filtration systems, generally don't filter for lead. But yeah, I probably uh, should have had a filter. But as I said, um, they were not advising not to bathe in it at the time. But luckily, I was not one of the people that was stuck in Flint through the whole crisis, though. Um, I mean, I was bathing in it regularly for about six months um there was there 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 are people in flint right now that have been bathing in it for seven years how's it going calvin which thing was i in there we go um oh it's nice to read his name i'm glad he's still active uh, Reverend Ed Pinkney, head of the Benton Harbor Community Water Council, uh, says the action is a step in the right direction. Um, he is a, well, damn, he's got to be real old now. He is a, an OG, I guess you should say, um, activist. He's been in Benton Harbor his whole life. He is organized against Whirlpool. He's organized against... Um, um, a lot of things that have happened in Benton Harbor, uh, you know, a lot of things pertaining to gentrification or attempted gentrification anyway. 
He was actually arrested for something. What was it? He was cleared after two years in prison. Um, he spent months in jail for election for forgery. Uh, the Michigan Supreme Court has decided it should have never happened. Uh, he was found guilty by a jury of five counts of election law forgery under uh, Michigan code. He says he knew all along it wouldn't hold up. Uh, but he was he was charged in January 2014 after turning in 62 petitions with more than 700 signatures in support of a recall against the mayor of Benton Harbor, James Hightower, um, who he accused of being a puppet for the Whirlpool Corporation. Um, but yeah, basically the point is, is... Uh, uh, they reviewed the signatures and found that, that uh, several of the dates may have been changed. Huh. Um, but yeah, anyway, he was found guilty and the, the state cleared it after two years in prison. Um, he's an inspiration, though. Anyway, I'm getting off topic. Um, I'm just glad that that two years in prison as an old man did not deter him from organizing. And that shows the exact type of strength and determination that we need. Um, but he's calling for a state of emergency right now. And that's the whole thing is it still isn't. Uh, there has been an emergency appeal, fi appeal filed to the EPA. Um, but basically, all eyes on Benton Harbor right now. They're going through the same shit that Flint was. They're being treated the same way that Flint was. Enough is enough. We need access to clean water. Okay, moving on. Um, climate change. The polar vortex is already in motion. Yay. Snow is hitting Britain in November, actually. Uh, so, I mean, I saw two days ago, I did not mean to open that new window. Who does that? No, I'm going to have 57 tabs like a normal person. Anyway, um, I saw two days ago that a weather agency out of the European Union called Severe Weather Europe uh, was noticing an unusually early stratos uh, stratospheric warming event um, with signs that it was only going to continue. And they weren't sure at that point what the effect on the polar vortex was going to be um, because the stratosphere warming causes instability in the jet stream, which is when the, when the polar vortex moves down, it means that the jet stream has pulled extremely cold air further south than it is supposed to go. Um, 
So, you know, like seeing an ice storm in Texas doesn't disprove global warming. It actually proves it. But anyway, moving on. Um, the stratosphere is extremely warm over uh, northern Canada, over the North Pole, all the way around to Siberia, which is not surprising there. They've had a, a fairly extreme um, season, as I understand it. Uh, the point, though, is that um, the... Brain fart. I'm sorry. the The point is that that we're already seeing the first polar vortex of the year. Um, the UK is getting snow in November, and what they're calling a polar vortex collapse. Uh, and the the BBC, a former BBC meteorologist, is saying that it could have dramatic impacts on winter weather, and that's not just for Europe. Uh, let's not forget that, you know, it's the whole top of the earth, which is a globe. It's not just a small piece of it. Um, yeah, so we don't know how all this is going to affect us, but, um, I mean, we already saw snow in a couple spots in Arizona. In October, and obviously that's the the highlands. We're not talking about the valley, but um, still, um, we're definitely going to have to keep our eyes on the polar vortex. I would not be surprised if we see more incidents like the big freeze in Texas last winter. Um, I, I I think that we're going to see this more and more and more and more and more as the, the globe warms. Um, and I guess this is just a friendly reminder that we need to take serious action to undo the damage that we've done. Um, yeah, so the point is though, that the polar vortex is already in motion. That's crazy. Um, it's only October. Um, and there's, there's no way really to predict what's going to happen this winter, but I think that we're going to see more events like we saw in Texas last winter. Um, and then I wanted to talk about the global energy crisis, but I'm already over an hour and a half in Kelvin, uh, Trisha is... Well, actually, she told me she was going to be a few minutes late, and now we're over an hour and a half in, so that's a good question. <laughs> I would assume that she got caught up. She just got back up north, so she's probably getting reacquainted with everybody there. Um, actually, there's one thing that I do want to talk about before I move on to the global energy crisis. I've been seeing a lot of Facebook posts about a general strike on October 15th, and I'm not going to try to talk anybody out of that. Um, but, uh, uh, I do think that if we're going to really try to have 
a general strike. We need to contact unions near us, any union. I mean, obviously, more radical unions like the IWW are probably going to be more open to the idea than, say, the AFL-CIO. But the point is power in numbers. Um, contact, you know, your local Teamsters. Contact your local IWW. Contact your local AFL-CIO. Contact, for the love of God, contact mutual aid support networks near you and get involved. We need to support and build mutual aid. It needs to be uh, a cultural thing, a, a lifestyle. It needs to not be just like, oh, hey, a severe event just happened. Pop up mutual aid for a week. I mean, that's great. And I'm glad that that, th that that kind of thing happens, but we need to have these systems in place all the time and we need to support them whenever there's a need. And a general strike would be a significant need. <clears throat> Um, so like I said, uh, I've been seeing a lot of people on left Twitter saying it's a terrible idea. I'm not sure if they're like ops. Um, but yeah, anyway, the point is talk to the people in your circles, organize this thing, support and build mutual aid networks, um, and contact your local union, yeah, your, your local unions. I don't know if I said yokel or if that was in my head, but yeah. Um, in theory, I completely support a general strike, but I do have serious concerns about whether uh, the systems that we have in place can support that. And um, rather than try to talk people out of doing it, I want to talk people into supporting and building mutual aid. Um Speaking of which, I would like to try to set up. So if anybody watching this uh, has any uh, experience in building mutual aid, um, I would like to have another mutual aid workshop. It was one of the first things we did. And it was cool and all, but I think that we need to go more in depth. Um, and I think we need to get more voices involved. Um, but... I do have water. I have had water this whole time. Anyway, contact your local unions. Um, talk to the people around you. Get involved with mutual aid. Um, and if a general strike does happen, for the love of God, support it. Um, anyway, global energy crisis, right. Um, I don't know all of the details here. I don't know if it is capitalist fear mongering. Um, but whether or not this is happening right now, uh, it will, it will happen. Capitalism breeds chaos. Uh, Marx called it the anarchy of the market or the anarchy of markets. But um basically they're talking about how the co the cost of energy was dirt cheap in spring of 2020 as roads and airports sat empty uh due to the pandemic energy demand is back as the world economy reopens but simply supply hasn't kept up and um 
U.S. oil pro prices have skyrocketed $120 since crashing to a negative $40 a barrel in April 2020. And by the way, what negative oil prices means was that places were being paid $40 a barrel to take oil. Negative $40 a barrel. Now we're looking at $80 a barrel. Uh, for the first time in nearly seven years. Um, I mean, the price of gas has nearly doubled since bottoming at $1.77 in April 2020, but I live in the Valley. It never really changed here. We were still paying $3 a gallon, and now it's going up. I paid three twenty-five with my fucking Fry's Kroger points. Anyway, um, so this all has to do with oil. Um, coal prices are, you know, skyrocketing in China um, amid flooding that forced the closure of dozens of mines. Um, coal remains the main source of energy in China, which is uh, rapidly um, changing. But coal is used for heating, power generation, and steel making. China is now grappling with power shortages, prompting the government to ration electricity during peak hours in some countries to suspend production. Against this backdrop, gasoline prices have crept higher and higher in the U.S., adding to inflationary pressures gripping the economy. The head of petroleum analysis at GasBuddy said $3.30 gas prices nationally are likely around the corner. Did I not just say that I paid three and a quarter to fill up yesterday? Um, all right, on to the next one. Actually, it looks like they're reiterating the same points, but uh, the, the, the point is um, we're going to, as production decreases in natural gas and coal and oil, um, an energy crunch is going to happen if we're not refitting our grid prior to that. And I'm not saying that we should necessarily only focus on wind and solar there's also geothermal um well this isn't power but i mean it can also produce power but uh solar desalination to help with the water crisis rising sea level desalinate the sea anyway um th this article is bringing up the the rolling blackouts in china as well but um i don't think it China is in the middle of a big green push. I mean, really, everybody kind of is. Um, but I think that as a lot of us are still forced to use oil-based things, we're just going to be priced out of it. Uh, what we're looking at is capitalism in a nutshell, I guess. 
everybody needs it and production is winding down. So we're going to charge out the ass for it. Right. Rather than like giving meaningful incentives to move away from oil, they're just going to price it out. Um, it's going to be a long road. I'm sure. Um, there is no easy answer. There, there are going to be costs. Nothing is fucking free. Um, exactly, Natalie. Uh, we definitely do need to do something. Um, and if we want them to improve, we have to be the change that we want to see. We can't just wait for the state to make these decisions, we have to force them. We have to give them no option. I guess that's really ultimately I have to say about that. Um, the point is, is this global energy situation is not going to improve unless the profit motive is gone. Capitalism thrives on this exact kind of thing. The depletion of resources. Um, yeah, I don't think I really have anything to add to that. Okay. I don't think I have anything else to uh, really share. So I think I'm just gonna um, go ahead and wrap this up. I hope everybody is having a good week. Um, we will probably not uh, be having another stream this week, but in case you weren't here at the beginning of the scream, scream, stream, then I uh, wanted to, uh, let everybody know that Mako will be coming back next week. Um, he wants to discuss the, a reflection, I guess, uh, of the 300 direct actions completed by, uh, his group, Elahi Spirit Runners. And, um, well, I'm really excited for that. Honestly, having him on last time was so informative to, to all of us and judging by its performance on Facebook and on podcast platforms, you guys liked it too. So, um, I, I really want to hear what he's got to say, reflecting on these uh, 300 direct actions. That's an impressive achievement for any group. Um, so yeah, solidarity. Um, yeah, that's all I got until next time. Solidarity.